0: hello what's up everybody you're listening to the multiracial mental health podcast where each month we explore the complexities of mental health through the lens of multiracial identity
1: my name is shireen shawaii and i'm a licensed psychotherapist and mixed race woman of black and iranian descent
0: And I'm Madrone Love, a fellow therapist and mixed-race woman of African-American and Scottish-Canadian descent.
1: Together, we're here to bring you informative and authentic conversations with experts in the field of multiracial mental health.
0: So we wanted to add a bit of context or a preamble to this podcast um, because of Upon listening to it, we recognized that there were some dynamics that were happening that we were weren't entirely conscious of during the initial recording.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and the first dynamic that stands out is that we were using an American framework of race and mixed raceness. Um, I might even say like a California Bay Area bias or something around it. Um, yeah. Uh, kind of how, how to understand people multi heritage that that we identify as mixed and our our um, guest today is from Trinidad and Tobago and she identifies as black with a white mother and a black father and even though she shares this with us there's a way in which we continue to put her in a box of of being mixed of having a mixed identity um Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And
1: it's, it's a learning experience for us, alongside, uh, you know, our listeners, um, and just anyone who's interested in these topics, because I think it actually illustrates something that, um, you know, as mixed people, we are trying to find a shared language. Uh, of our experiences, and our experiences are so varied and variable Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, we're doing kind of the best we can from here and wanting to learn as we go and learn from our guests versus imposing any ideas onto them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that, you know, over time, um, this becomes more of an expansive conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we just wanted to point that out in advance. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and I'll add one more um, aspect of what was happening was, again, Laura identifies as a Black woman, as she says, for political reasons. And there are so many people um, who have multi-heritage background that identify using more monoracial labels, specifically folks with any African heritage, mm-hmm. and so we just want to respect that. Respect, um, however, people choose to identify. And also, respect the the legacy, the reason why people would choose um, to identify as black mm-hmm. or any any monoracial label. Um, we're not, we don't have an agenda to force a mixed identity on anybody. Um, and we really want to just, again, respect how folks have chosen to, to describe their experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We,
1: we might even in the future have, uh, an episode on this topic. Yeah.
0: I think that'd be great. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. Well, here we go. Here's the episode.
0: Hello again, everyone. Today we're talking with clinical psychologist Lara Baden Semper. Lara has been
1: practicing neurofeedback and psychotherapy in Trinidad and Tobago for the past 14 years. She's a level two trained internal family systems therapist and a regular program assistant or PA for IFS trainings. She's also a certified and specialized neurofeedback practitioner and is trained in EMDR, emotional freedom technique, and heart math. Born in Trinidad and Tobago, Lara has Afro-Trinidadian and white English heritage. Lara is passionate about creating a therapeutic space where clients can unburden and heal from wounds caused by systematic oppressions such as racism, ableism, sexism, homophobia, poverty, colonialism, and imperialism.
0: So why don't we get started with, if um, you wouldn't mind telling us, what made you decide to become a multiracial-focused therapist?
2: So that's an interesting question for me because I've never thought of myself as a multiracial focused therapist. I am a person, a multiracial person, and I am a therapist, you know, and practicing in Trinidad and Tobago, everybody's mixed in some way or another, the majority of the population. Um, and it's so it, it lands very differently here. So all my clients, majority will have. Either mixed race, and it could be more than one. You know, you could be. My, my stepdaughter is African origin, Indian origin, has Chinese, white European, and Indigenous Indian heritage to start off with, and that is not uncommon. So it's always there. It's it's part of the culture. So I have, you know, I haven't really thought of myself in that way. I guess that my 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 mixed race ness did in a way lead me to become a therapist because I um, I started off born in Trinidad and Tobago. Race wasn't a thing. I was just a regular kid. Then migrated and ended up in Belgium, which was a very racist place at the time. And so then I thought I knew I was black. You know, I didn't know anything about mixed race yet, but I knew I was black. I knew that was a problem that was told to me every day, you know, in quite harsh ways. Um, it was, you know, I was in a the only black child in a in a white um English an English army kids' school and had a huge impact on on me feeling bad about myself for being black. You know, I understood that much. And then moved to England and then, you know, got asked the question in the playground one day. I'll say it in the English accent, Are you a half caste? And I was like, huh I had no idea how to answer the question, but it was the beginning of me being able to understand. Oh, like yeah, you're not white, you're definitely not white, but you're also not quite black. And it's a whole another understanding for me coming, and that was coming from, a, again, from a white perspective and what I, what I now understand as being, you know, white supremacy culture, defining who I am and, and the ways that I'm not, not white. That had such an impact on me in my life that I think it's one of the things that brought me to therapy as a client and in getting therapy as a client and the many experiences I had there lend me the good and eventually and a lot of very unhelpful maybe harmful experiences led me to eventually becoming a therapist and i bring all that into my work you know i understand what that's done to me and you know it helps me to see that that's what might be a problem in my clients too and make a space where it's okay to talk about all these things
1: hmm you know, I, I have a, a question that's kind of that's forming as as we're talking. Um, that um, you know, I I think what's standing out to me is you know being in a, a country as you are where it sounds like you know being multiracial is almost kind of taken for granted because it most you know so many people are, um, and yet you know obviously like the sort of symptoms of white supremacy culture still play out as they do. Um, and so I wonder if, you know, and maybe this is getting ahead a bit or it's, it's speaking to kind of how you PA or just, you know, spend a lot of time working in U S based trainings, but what, what is there any, um, what's the value that you might see in, maybe applying a framework of uh, multiracial identity um, to clients who, um, you know, are in your country who might see themselves or who may not identify specifically as multiracial, and but are. Um, does that make sense well, you know what I
2: mean? Yeah, well, first of all, huge point. I would say that the majority of Trinidadians would not necessarily identify themselves as multiracial though so they have a number of races and trying to classify themselves on ethnicity demographic forms is quite difficult. I think people experience like a lot of dissonance there. you know, we've got a population that is 35% African heritage, 35% Indian as in Southeast Asian Indian heritage, 20% mixed, which would include Chinese, Syrian, Lebanese, small percentage with, with more European heritage. Um, So people don't necessarily identify themselves that way, but it's still a huge part of the culture because we have a lot of anti-African feeling from the Indian community, a lot of anti-Indian feeling from the African community. We still see white supremacy thinking amongst our leadership, even though they may appear black or they may appear Indian in that the lighter your skin, you know, culturally still, the better it is for you, the better you'll be treated. People will make assumptions about your status, your socioeconomic status, for example, based on the color of your skin. So we have colorism playing. So in that way, it's still such a huge part of us. And my me understanding it, especially coming in the US and working in US trainings and seeing how this multiracial lens is it's kind of focusing on what that means. It helps me to bring that back to my clients and say, well, maybe you're feeling this because. because of the very different parts of your heritage and how that's landing in you. Yeah, and maybe maybe more than that, just being aware of how the dynamics have played out in myself. You know, being aware that there's parts of me that have been so hurt around aspects of my identity, around being black, around my hair, around feeling ugly. You know, so I may come across a, a client with very different heritage to me, maybe Indian heritage, maybe half Muslim, half Hindu you know one half the family is Hindu one half is Muslim looking like monoracial really uh, your assumption might be but then they went to a school where they also were made to feel very ugly because the school was predominantly white you know or um, you know I'm thinking of clients that I have uh, a beautiful black you know predominantly African heritage client who has always felt less than because she's been raised in an Indian in a predominantly Indian school and community and So it's being me holding that awareness of what's happened to me helps me maybe help people to get closer to the wounds they've had and understood that these thoughts they're having about themselves are not a sign that they're actually flawed or ugly or less than, it's the result of the experiences they've had, which are racist experiences, which are racist experiences. And even that sentiment, the African against Indian, was very much cultivated by the British colonializers as they were leaving to as as they were as we were moving out of enslavement, to kind of stop everybody gathering together and overthrowing the landed wealthy. You know, so even that was part of white supremacy culture trying to maintain its power and its and its hold. And it's, you know, it's deep, is deep. I can't even the ways that it shows up, other ways I see people feeling less than because they feel less European. You know, a lot of our standards that we hold ourselves to in the region are still European standards. I mean, especially for the older generation so everything British everything culturally British even the trying to express yourself in that way or how you lay your dining table or you know the the correct how you speak the correct language you know we have a lot of layers of dialect and you know so there's a certain segment of society that really pride themselves on speaking very standard English and look down on those who speak a more local English shows up in so many ways. And my sort of experience of living both in Trinidad and outside and experiencing a lot of racism, it it makes me more alert. and makes me more able to see that that this might be what's actually showing up. Wonderful. So I
0: wanna ask you about language and labels and You expressed that when you were in the UK, somebody called you a half-caste, and that clearly didn't sit right with you. And Oh, tell me, it seems like you're having a reaction.
2: (laughs) I I didn't understand it. I didn't understand. I I didn't even know what that was. You know, my parents have had this idea, which I think is a bit of a 70s idea. We just won't talk about race and it'll be fine. We all just love each Mm -hmm. other and it's fine. That did not equip me for the actual world that I went out into. You know, so it led me to be thinking there's something wrong with me. That's why they're calling me this is Frenchish children, doo-doo and cacao, which is not very nice to call me excrement. That's why and I thought it was me. I didn't have the language to understand, no, it's because you're black and this is the history. You know, and the half cast, yeah, I didn't understand that term, you know. I don't even know what it was but the languaging, yeah, carry on. So I've got another example of that.
0: <laughs> so I'm curious how um, either you racial identify currently um, or how somebody who has a one parent who is say predominantly of African descent and another parent who is of predominantly European descent or um, South Asian descent. Yeah, I'm curious about the labels that are used in Trinidad and Tobago.
2: Right, right. But I would describe myself as black as in a political statement, I'm not white, you know. And that would be my personal description. And I would also say, you know, what a black father and a white mother. (laughs) So I would not like to describe myself. I do not like the word half plus, it feels so painful. It makes me think about slavery. It makes me think about house slaves and it makes me think about all of that. And the other thing I've been called down here, I went to report a crime (laughs) and they were taking in my data in the the police station and they're like, so wait, is a half breed or what? another really uh, not very it wasn't good I got real mad. Right. they had to change the officer and get me somebody else but you know the fact that the guy said it is that it's 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 so much still in the speech those words and they feel they feel horrible they hurt still you know um here people would describe me they frequently do as red and red is like better than black not quite white you know and something I also really 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 do not like it's to me it's just completely a racist statement it's just basically everything is defined on your proximity to whiteness so coming I lived in England I I was there till I went there as as a child secondary school mainly in England primary school in Belgium and worked there through my 20s and became very you know conscious and understanding of this race and what's all what's all this about what is white supremacy culture you know And what it's done to the rest of the world and then came back to Trinidad and came with another friend of mine who's also mixed race same mix and she's but she's fairer skin than me and people were calling her white and she was so offended. she was so she could not she never came back she said she will never go back because why are they calling her white having been hurt for her whole life for being black in the UK to come to Trinidad and be told that she's white and then people are not saying it in a rude way they're actually giving her a little status for it but she it just annoyed her and I also you know correct people when they start talking to me the red talk I don't like it and we have a whole dialogue around what it means to be red it's like you have certain morality lower morality you know they've got mixed race morals they say it's like that is a slur in itself so yeah there's some pretty ugly labels and we have labels for African Indian mix you know some people own it some people do not appreciate it. we have we have a lot of racial labels going around all ways around but I think how people would often identify themselves here is a lot of people like to say I'm Trinidadian, I'm Trinidadian, but it's not an ethnicity, but I think it, it feels more comfortable. I think people are very uncomfortable around racial labels still.
0: And so what has that been like for you um, to have so many different labels applied to you uh, over the years?
2: Yeah, I mean, it has not been, you know, always less than, always less than, you know, as a, as a feeling of being less than. Um, And kind of accepting it in terms of, okay, I understand white supremacy, but hard when it also can make you feel that you do, you belong in your black community as well. And that, so that can be, that was quite hard for me, for, you know, at times when, you know, people, especially in England, gravitating to West Indian community in London to find sanity and safety. And but sometimes being met with, particularly from girls at that competitive edge. And I didn't understand then. I didn't understand I felt black. So I didn't understand that my lightness was making them pissed because maybe I'm gonna get more attention because of my lightness, and I didn't understand it then. So that's one way that I've that I found very hurtful. But it is a lot easier now. But that was certainly my experience when younger.
1: Well, Laura, how how do you approach discussions about race and ethnicity? In, in therapy um, and, you know, inter- intersectional aspects of identity, because there are, you know, so many that uh, we're carrying with us.
2: Mm-hmm. So I see like two parts. How do I a- approach race and ethnicity discussions in therapy? Well, I start off by owning all my identities. Like when I first start to work with a client, I am like upfront. This is this is me. I'm half black, I'm half white. I've lived in Trinidad, I've lived in England. And I will also speak to some of my other identities. Quite a few of them. I will talk about my neurodiversity, that I live with autoimmune disease, that I'm a I'm a solo parent and a grandmother. I'll give my age, kind of lay quite a lot of my identities out there. And find doing that, that I'm a trauma survivor, that I came to therapy after being a client because it helped me and, you know, eventually decided, oh, I'm going to do this. I tend to put all of that out there. They'll know who they're talking to, and I find it does help to create a space where maybe you could bring it up. You know, I'm setting the tone that it's okay to bring it up as well. Whatever you're sitting with, you know, I want to welcome that. I'll state my, my, you know, that I'm cis, um, gendered straight, but, you know, I lay
1: it all out, so people have a like mm, That transparency. yeah. Uh, and do clients then feel that they, do they, do you find that they bring up their own identities more freely because of that?
2: Definitely. There's normally, like, at least one that people jump on straight away, and they're like, I'm so glad you said that, and they'll, they'll, they'll go into it. And there probably will be others as well. So, you know, it's not that I'm going to push my clients, like, talk about your racial trauma, talk about, but as clients are talking, I am holding in my mind, like, I wonder if this is part of your racial trauma. I wonder if this is part of the ableism you faced. I wonder. So, I'm kind of like holding space for it. And, you know, the, the way we work in IFS, I'm not going to be telling anyone where to go, but if a part is going, a part of a person is telling me about experiences that, I can see it clearly, possibly rooted in white supremacy culture and the impact of it, you know, I'm holding that awareness and helping them to to get there, just just by being aware, just by being, and resonating with what they're saying, with their pain, with their suffering, with what it's done to their identity, and maybe I'll ask a question, do you think it's because, you know, do you think it's because your hair is not the hair that everybody else had that you hate it so much, you
1: know? You know, I'm appreciating you uh, bringing up IFS <clears throat> in this discussion, and uh, you know, I think again one of the uh, the reasons that I I approached you about doing this was that you know we PA'd together, and um, and you know IFS talks about legacy burdens, right? Just sort of a you know how how our our systems organize around intergenerational trauma. Um, you know, what we receive from our ancestry um, and, you know, in a nutshell. And um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts um, about, A, you know, if, if you can maybe define IFS for our listeners here, um, and then B, how, what are your observations on um, how multiracial folks, address the, the concepts and work with their, their parts around legacy burdens.
2: So that's, that's a big question.
1: So IFS
2: is a model of understanding, I would say humans, human psyche and how we work that understands that we are not. Uh, we are multiple beings, at core we're multiple beings. You know, we can hold different motivations at the same time. We can wanna get up early to exercise, be real committed to it, and also just decide to switch off that alarm and go to bed. Mm -hmm. And I stay in bed and IFS would say that's two different parts of us, two different motivations, two different viewpoints running at the same time. And And I love that, I love the model. It to me just helped me be able to make sense of so much about myself. You know, even that little example or, you know, the health manager that I have that's like, you know, you're going to eat the right diet so you have no flare-ups. And the other little impulsive one that just grabs the chocolate and starts eating it, it helped me make space for all my varying, for my complexity. And in terms of being multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural, that's huge. That's huge. It gives you a space where you can hold all your your complexity, your varying parts, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that, yeah, I can't remember exactly what you asked about IFS, but that, that's how I love the model. And it's that holding that we can be multiple, we can have multiple feelings running at the same time, and they are both true and they are both of value. And they are both trying to provide some information to us as a system. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the other important part of IFS is that we also understand that there's a, a self energy, it's called an IFS, you know, um, a higher self, uh, an infinite self, a universal self, a transpersonal self, mm-hmm. a spirit self, depending on how you look at it, that can hold all of these facets. and in and that has no problem with all of the for all the ways that you show up as a person, the things you consider good and the things you are ashamed of that this self will be quite okay to hold all of you and love you as you are. And so that's been a you know, and and in that, I think is the healing, and that's just a huge piece of the importance of IFS as a model to me in working in working with people with who've had all these different experiences in life. And to me, being racial multiracial, you know, anything other than being white in a white supremacy world is going to lead you to some wounding. Some parts of yourself may have been shut off. Actually even if you're white, that, that's a complete lie. Cause even if you're white you're carrying the burden of it. It's not healthy for anybody. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be parts there that are hurting and IFS as a, as a way to approach those parts in the non-judgmental you know trying to approach it with that self energy that can hold anything and can understand anything that comes up in you mm-hmm. and can help you to heal any places that you've been hurt.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was the, um, the attraction to IFS for me too. And I think a lot of uh, IFS folks would would agree with that the idea that um, we, you know, it sort of takes for granted that we all have parts and we're all of, of multiple minds about something, right? I, I, I tell clients, you know, it is completely normal. And, you know, if you think about it, we can feel five different ways about the same event, right? Um, and so tracking that in terms of parts and, um, yeah, again, yeah, like you say, like allowing space for the, the complexity and the nuances of our, our internal experience. Um, -hmm.
2: and i say we could kind of add, and the way that our parts show up in our system is the ways, you know, based on the experiences we've had. So we internalize our environments, you know, so if we've experienced racism, we're gonna internalize parts. We may internalize racist parts and parts that are hurt by racism. We may internalize parts that tell us, well, you know, lighten your skin. You look a lot better then. You know, that that's just a part, it can show up as racist inside. <laughs> you know, so we've taken in our external experiences and creating parts, interjecting them, creating parts around them. And IFS is a is a beautiful way to safely approach those parts, even ones that maybe you know, socially, that's acceptable.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm. And so in terms of legacy burdens. Right, and the legacy burden piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what have you been seeing or, um, you know, what are and or what are your thoughts about how that applies in a multiracial context?
2: Yeah, well, I'm going to start off with my first thoughts about legacy burdens are that it's just such a huge area and that it's not well you know, it's it's becoming increasingly, I guess, looked at. And I'll share a story of the way that I first became aware of it, which was prior to IFS, which was when I'm doing neurofeedback. And when I'm doing neurofeedback, I'm doing assessments. And the guy I was working with, Dr. Paul Swingle, there's a certain assessment he does that will show up a trauma marker in your brain, a marker, your brain activation pattern that would indicate to him trauma, right? Um, So I'm assessing lots and lots of people. I'm doing my supervision. And everybody, every single person in my clinic in Trinidad that I'm assessing is showing up with this trauma marker. And he's like, nah, there's a wiring problem in the office. So we got the office rewired. Nah, there's something wrong, check the equipment. We changed the equipment, changed the wires, changed everything. Consistently, we are finding 99% of my clients are showing up with this trauma marker. And in the end, I had to say, look, have you, you know, you're a white Canadian. This is not Canada, this is the Caribbean. Our history is very fresh maybe the population is highly traumatized and and, and, you know and to me now I understand that it's a partly a legacy burden ongoing trauma yes but we're literally carrying the memory the quite recent memory of our history which was brutal and bloody and I mean really really bad (laughs) and we're carrying it you know and it's showing up in people's brain firing patterns Mm. so that kind of gives me a you know neurological understanding of how legacy burdens you know hurts generational hurts are passed down the line and pa- even in the patterns of firing in your brain you know so to me it's such a huge thing and in terms of working with multiracial clients what I've noticed in the U.S. is that is really really difficult to start looking at legacy burdens it's really difficult especially if you've got white heritage it can be quite difficult you know you can my personally when I do any of the ancestral work and the exercises in the training? I can feel my black ancestry much more clearly and supportively than I can feel the white. I can't really feel the white. It it's it's a lot different, and I don't know what's going on there. So there's still stuff happening in my system around that as well. And yeah, I, I've seen it repeatedly that it's it's hard. It's really hard. It's also hard for people who've been displaced in any way. People who have been adopted. It's really hard for people who are not with a birth origin family people who's, who've migrated a lot and so you know reform themselves in a whole new culture but have roots in another culture. So I do see a few of these things. In terms of my clients, they I mean clearly carrying legacy burdens all the time. <laughs> all the time. And it could be it can be around race, but it can also very much be about culture. You know, when you've got Muslim culture and Hindu culture. We're also very multi religious got Christian culture, and they're all buttoned up against each other, and so people are experiencing, you know, the burdens of each on both coming through them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So, Laura, I'm wondering if you might walk us through how you might work with a client who um, has a legacy burden who it it seems clear to you that this would be a benefit for for them, um, either using IFS or neurofeedback. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, Neurofeedback, you know you it you're you're just going for the brain firing. And that is why I personally believe that it goes very well with therapy, and by itself, it can be a lot, because as you change that brain firing, whatever that pattern in your brain, you know I now I now will also understand that's a part that's learned to make your brain function a certain way for protection, yes, for safety right so one of the trauma markers is we don't have so much memory so if you're gonna free up that brain firing pattern so the memories come back then i gonna really need to do the therapy with the legacy burden work if that's what was held in that in that pattern Mm -hmm. so um yeah and in terms of the therapy psychotherapy work you know if someone's talking about a burden they're carrying of i don't know whatever it is, I'll ask them how much, straight out ask them, in IFS you straight out ask them how much of this percentage belongs to you and how much is not yours, you know? And or you'll ask them how much of this is not yours. And they can quite often just give you an answer and I would trust that. And then I'll say, okay, well, there's some steps we can do to do a legacy unburdening, are you interested? And some people are, and some people have a lot of stuff coming up. So then we don't we do not do it that way. We can unburden it in the in the normal way that we do in IFS. So it's, it's an offer and it's there on the table and it's it's not directed because IFS is is following the client system rather than me deciding oh I have this great intervention I have to work quite hard on that pulling back my great interventions and seeing where the client system actually wants to go.
1: Mm -hmm. So just in terms of the interventions that you use and the approaches that you use you Mm -hmm. see. Your work is a kind of a blend of IFS, neurofeedback,
2: uh, psychodynamic? I, or... I would say I am IFS. My orientation is IFS. I am an IFS therapist. But I have a lot of knowledge around neurofeedback, your, your neurology, how that impacts the way we function. I also have a lot of information around the body and how much of our feeling is expressed that way. And how our body functioning affects our brain and how linked it's all linked together so i said i've got a very holistic orientation and i wouldn't want to separate out one part or another but my theoretical orientation these days is, is ifs more than anything else but not that you know my other knowledge has gone away <laughs> mm-hmm. but so my approach to the healing and ifs is not really a technique based approach it's more of a relationship approach is to make relationship with whatever the clients bring in. Right. If, and if these are parts that are hurt around race, then that's what we're gonna, that's what I'm gonna be getting to know all about from them. So each new client makes their own therapy and my job is to be present and open. And so my job is also then in order to be present is to keep working with my clients That may be having reactions to parts of their ethnicity, for example, like I need to be aware of what's happening inside me, or it may be also, feeling triggered and feeling like overly sympathetic with them or overly feeling their their stuff as well and getting a little bit like it's getting a bit personal for me you know and I have to watch for that too because I'll do my job well when I'm able to tend to my parts and hold them and be very open to what the client is experiencing. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah certainly and you know in, in part this podcast is um, you know it's it's for the the wider community. It's also for therapists. And I think you know we can relate to what gets evoked in us as we yeah. are, you know relating Hugely. to our clients. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, I
2: see that be the block a lot of times. I had a client. he's um he is white looking and um Caribbean or heritage, but born and born and raised in the Caribbean. And you know, I've had a few of them actually, and they can come into my session and because, in Trinidad, they might live a very, they live a very encapsulated life. They really only see other white people unless the black people are working for them. So within their culture, there's quite a lot of racist language. So they can come in my office and say, I don't want to say the word. (laughs) I don't want to curse, but like they'll use the n-word, right, to describe someone who gave them a bad drive on the road. And I'm there like, how do I? How do I hold this? You know, that's when I have to be quite attentive to what's happening in myself and how I respond, and you know, and then sometimes I don't seem to realise that I might be offended, you know, because because I'm the therapist, I don't, I don't know, and it's that that can be a lot for me because I have parts that are in a rage. They are like, you know, they're activist parts, they are anti-racist activist parts, and they get mad. <laughs> And that's not going to probably be the place for me to be the most helpful if I am going to help somebody unpack their racist parts. So it's kind of working that.
1: <laughs> You're speaking to, um, you know, to a to a topic or a theme that uh, also, I think, you know, a lot of therapists share, and particularly therapists of color um, when sitting with white clients um, and instances like these happen. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, you shared a little bit about what, what happened for you there, but um, how how do you hold that? Um, how do you hold that for yourself? How do you hold that um, for your practice? Is there anything that an experience like that has you considering about the work you do or, or the, the clientele you see? Um,
2: you know? It's not easy. It's not easy to hold, you know, at the point in time, there's a lot of things that happen inside me. I mean, my, my nervous system activates along. It's alarm. It You know, I went through racial abuse every day of my life from the age of six to 10, every single day, the whole day in school. So, you know, it's a six-year-old who's frightened, that <laughs> gets like activated. And then there's a teenager, Lara, who came to understand What white supremacy was, what black power was, what all about Africa, about the ancient civilization, about what's happened, about really the atrocities that have happened to African people over the years. And she's mad. So that part gets activated. So there's a lot of things that I'm sitting with in a moment like that. And then there's a therapist, Lara, who's like, "Ah, this is your client. You've got to try and help them. They're doing this because they're injured. They're doing the, the part, there's the part that has the understanding that this is the culture you're in you know the white business class in my in my in Johannesburg in my culture pretty racist they're pretty racist they know they're living the white supremacy kind of they they you know it strangely a lot of them may not fully pass for white if they were in the us but they're living it here and they have the money and they also you know pay very poor wages and look down on black people horribly and you know i have to hold that that is their culture that that is their culture and You know, I still work with most of them. I don't fire them. I I don't not work with the clients. You know, it's not a huge, my, my, I guess my um, client base kind of reflects the population of the country. It's the same kind of mix. So it's not loads and loads of clients I have in that bracket. Um, Yeah, it's quite, it's it's a challenge, but I choose to, I have chosen to try and work with it. And I have to let the the one, (laughs) the activist, I have to calm her down quite a lot. Because jumping in and trying to correct people, I I know that's not going to be the way. So I have to kind of comfort her with the fact that well, she lets my self energy handle it. Maybe the person will heal. But these are even though it's presenting as a oppressive behavior, I think it's still it's still based in wounding. I think it's based it's not based in health. You know, it's not based in their highest being. So I try to hold out that if I can stay in my self energy, maybe we'll get there. Another client I've worked with long term, and really I'm seeing that the journeys danced in and out, in and out, in and out. And I'm seeing them come to a place where they are making a bit of peace with with that. So for themselves and what it means to be white and, white and Caribbean.
0: Laura, I'm curious, do you ever directly address the issues of power and privilege um, that are alive in your relationship with your clients? So whether that's a, a white client who has um, Lighter skin privilege, or a darker skin client, uh, where you may be holding the
2: mm, privilege. Yeah, I mean, I, I speak to it's a little bit, you know, if I'm working with clients with less privilege, I'm becoming aware, I would say, of the importance of speaking to, you know, educational privilege, financial privilege that I do have compared to compared to some of my clients. So there's another thing that I think it's important to speak to, um, and it's kind of becoming increasingly clear as so I need to speak to that when I'm owning my identities at the beginning. And, I mean, my clients with less privilege are quite well aware that they have less privilege. They are real, real well aware of it. Like, they don't need me to tell them that. They they know. Um, So I hold space for that. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I get it. And it is really hard. And it is really unfair. And this society is, you know, and I'll have that conversation that it's structural. And it is stacked. You know, you're right. The odds are stacked against you. And that does not mean anything about you as a person, but that is the structure that you're operating in. And I guess that would be the message that I am I'm believe and what I would want to hold out, that this is not about you as a person. This is a very, very unfair system yeah. and you are structurally disadvantaged. And that would be the way I approach it. And with the advantaged ones, they are much less aware of their privilege. They just like right. going along happy clappy, not really examining it at all. And Maybe very frustrated by the behavior of people that are working for them and stuff and that's where I'll be like, well, you know, their experience has been completely different. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm just, I guess my role is to show this is systemic. This is beyond the individual and that that is what I'm holding out. That I understand that this is a system, this system has evolved over time, you know, depending on the client, how far we're going to go in that. But my belief is that, you know, it's all about money making. A lot of this evolved in, in really ingenious ways too continue to make as much money as possible from the rest of the world by a handful of Europeans. And that system is having a massive impact on lives all over the world still.
1: <laughs> Laura, I'm curious how how you find community for yourself. Um, I know, you know, IFS and pa is one way, but, um, you know, our... Are you involved in any other uh, kind of therapist groups or, um, you know, formal or casual kind of, you know, organizations? What's your experience with with spaces like that? Mm. Well,
2: there was a hugely important part of IFS for me was finding community. You know, we train in groups, big groups and break into small groups and medium-sized groups during the training and beginning to feel that community was a massive thing for me. I don't feel it as much among my fellow therapists in Trinidad, we do have some, and we're all also quite siloed and I would say guarded, you know, that might just be me. I might just be how I feel. Maybe I carry a feeling of unbelonging and not fitting in, but I have found that people are quite competitive, um, you know, There's only so many clients we can see, you know, there's enough clients, but people are quite competitive and guarded. Um, Trinidad is a self-segregating place. So we have little groups, kind of partially racially, homogenous groups of therapists who interact among each other. And I don't particularly mix with any particular group though. I'll say that I did, uh, when I first came back to Trinidad, and I was beginning to train as a therapist there, I got introduced to re-evaluation counseling, which is a peer support, model of counselling, we share time, one is the talker, one's the listener, and then you switch over and the other one's the talker, some basic principles and that part of re-evaluation counselling did build community and that was very important to me and now the IFS community is providing a lot of that for me because it's within IFS there's a way to speak about these issues that are so important to me that are harder to speak to to people who don't have IFS language, who have not necessarily looked inside. You know so i train a few of my friends also to understand me <laughs> so i can have someone to talk to but i think community is huge and it's something i want to build in the caribbean you know i want to maybe introduce more therapists to this model because it gives us a language to talk about some of the hard stuff that other models of therapy do not necessarily give you a language other mer- m- models not even examining their origin in european and American culture, you know, so IFS, you know, at least allows you to speak for your part. So it's a more inside out type of therapy. The others tend to be bringing in ideas and ways of being that are formed, you know, not nothing to do with the community and culture here where I'm from, you know, they're they're not formed from us. So I'm hoping that if I bring IFS people can then integrate all their other skills, but also have this way of being speaking from themselves and for their parts and not just trying to fit a mold that it was never designed to fit.
0: Um, as someone who is not trained in IFS, although I, I I love the modality, what I know of it, um, I'm curious, are there many clinicians of color uh, in the trainings, in the community, and what has it been like to develop community in the IFS world?
2: Mm. Well, I think we've got increasingly num- increasing numbers. Of IFS clinicians of color, and that's been a you know an intentional thing that you know a few have led the way to really opening it up. So we've had trainings like Black Therapist Rock training, which is targeted just at people with Black heritage. Then you've got BIPOC trainings now um, offered by the IFS Institute. I worked on one for clinicians of color. That was a specific group and they, they had a training. Um, so we've got increasingly numbers, but my first experiences were were in predominantly white trainings and yeah that was that was a different feeling i i mean i got through it and i got a lot and i got a lot of healing and a lot of learning but i didn't feel the same community as i have done in working in the BIPOC spaces that feels really different and and then btr space and that has been amazing that's just been a tangible difference in my in my in the way i show up i will show up and i'll push through right and show myself even in a predominantly white space, but it's a lot harder and there's a lot more defensive parts of me up that I'm probably having to force aside to be able to speak at all. And and that's just such a body thing. That's just, as soon as I look at the screen, they're big trainings, there's like 50 squares. And if I see all these 50 squares are white and there's just me, I'm having a reaction already, you know? So yeah, IFS as being very intentional about making spaces where where we can have these discussions, where it's safe. Where you can actually do your inner work, and ISF, IFS training involves doing your inner work, going inside and being with your own vulnerabilities and understanding that, as you also be with your clients, you know, safety is really important. And so I'm finding that I I, I love to work in, in those spaces. That's where I that's where I'm happy, and that's where I want to be doing my work and offering whatever I have.
0: <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy to hear.
1: Well, I think you're you're speaking to this um in in different ways, but um, you know, how do you balance, you know, what you see as the maybe unique needs and experiences of of multiracial clients, you know, as you experience them with um with just the general principles of psychotherapy?
2: Well, again, you know, I've got to go. I guess I'm blessed to have this model, but with IFS, you're understanding a client's going to have parts, and a multiracial client might have multiracial parts. Um, You know, it's almost as simple as that. And, you know, in my own own explorations of myself, you know, I've gone inside and I found some parts that are one's a little white girl, you know, and another part has an instant reaction going, What the is she doing here? (laughs) Why is she here? They don't like her much and she's there saying well just be pretty like me and then you'll be okay she's, she's a little girl and she's holding a little black baby that looks kind of dead it's a very strange image but it shows me that our parts can like have even different ethnicities on the inside um wow. so IFS gives me a space to hold that and to maybe be open to is this what my client's experiencing hey is this one this is you know and I can even ask a question you know
1: I love that so much. I'm just, you know, just the 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 depth that um, your experience with IFS is, you know, bringing to you about, just, you know, how your parts show up, right? And um and and what a what a wonderful uh way that that allows you or enables you to to really hold space differently.
2: Yeah, because I I don't think I would have expected something like that, or even been. You know, alert to something like that in a client, unless I'd sort of found it in myself and it had really stood out and really made me see. Oh, there's this. There's all these. There's the little black baby. There's this white girl, and then there's this teenager. She's like the. She's the activist. You know, she's really roots. She looks more like me. She's got her ass She's like. You know, she's really conscious, and yeah. And you know, recently I've also been seeing another dynamic because I've been thinking about ableism. Because of living with a certain amount of, well, I'm neurodiverse and I had eight major surgeries. I've got an autoimmune disease. I've, I live with an amount of disability that you can't necessarily see. Um, you know, I begun to realize I've got parts that really consider me look look down on me and consider me broken. You know, they consider me broken and not good enough, and that's what they like to tell me. And they constantly strive to fix my brokenness. You know, and then there's other parts that just think, eat, eat eat you'll be fine (laughs) don't think about it just eat you know they like try to comfort any broken feeling by eating a lot and eating things that particularly might upset the rest of my body and make me sicker and in looking at that you know i again i found that just as how the racism i experienced created these parts inside of me the ableism i've experienced has created these parts these parts in me and and it's operating kind of in a similar way you know white supremacy says A white man of a certain ability is the standard of human and everything else is less. Being black is less. Being different ability, being differently abled is also less. Being chronically ill is less. Being neurodiverse, your brain working differently is is less than human. You know, it's something that's wrong, something you need to fix. And then we develop these inner parts that, you know, use that rhetoric on us on a daily basis to try and make us show up in a more acceptable way. And, you know, holding all that is how I approach therapy how I understand myself and also how I understand what possibly could be happening in, in the client.
0: So Laura, you've touched on this, um, this, uh, what, what you're with your clients, and it sounds like this unburdening of parts, this creating space for different parts. I guess I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about what's an ideal outcome? when is a client ready to take a break Mm
2: -hmm. well again they will probably determine that themselves for me i love it that moment where i see this is where my nervous system knowledge comes in but when i see like a, a kind of calm nervous state calm and alert nervous system state we're not in sympathetic we're not all hyped up We're calm. We're not flat either, but we're in that place, and I can see it by the softness in the face, by the way they are, the tone of their voice, the speed of the speech. And so there's, you know, obviously I'd love them to be like this all the time, but in every session, if I've been able to hold them well and make enough space for all their parts to be, for them to be comfortable with everything that they're presenting with, that's a that's a win. That's a moment. That's the ideal moment when they're able to be with themselves. With whatever's coming up and hold it compassionately because then the heal I believe the healing is, is, is an innate impulse it's totally there it's just blocked off and people are blocked off when they're locked in one side of an argument or another when 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 they're trying not to feel anything at all, when there's too much shame, all these things are happening and so that those moments when they're able to compassionately be with whatever they're feeling really feel it, hold it, allow it to have space. And I know that in that moment, it will naturally begin to resolve itself because that's our healing nature. That that's, that's, those are the good outcomes. And I think when people can hold it enough for themselves, that's when they move on or they spread out their sessions and they, you know, they manage to internalize that ability. If I'm able, as I'm able to hold it for them in the beginning, increasingly the clients are able to hold that space for themselves, to be able to have dialogue, to hear from all their parts that are going on. So they're not just in chronic tension or, you know, in a it, never-ending battle between two sides of themselves. They're able to be with both of the sides and be with whatever wound lies below all these behaviors that we're having. And and then they don't need me anymore as much. (laughs)
0: Laura, what I was hearing was um, this increased resilience in the nervous systems of your clients and increased self-compassion and increased openness to the complexity of their internal experience.
2: Yeah. And, and I guess the suffering that lies below the complexity, you know, because it's it's wounding that gets us stuck in angry mode or stuck in anxious mode or stuck in, in depressed mode. It, it's wounding. And so the, the hole in the space allows access to the wound. And if we can access the wound with an with open-hearted compassion, it can heal. We are programmed to heal. We would not survive otherwise. So it's, you know, for me, IFS has made a way for me to to help people to get into the state where the natural healing will just happen. Yeah. And it's there, it's there in every single client. And I really hope that it's in every single client, the more trauma there's been, the more it may be hidden, but it's there. Yeah. So That's
0: I just beautiful. landed
2: mine for a while.
0: Got it, thank you. Hmm.
1: Well, Laura, do you do you have any any thoughts or any advice for other mental health professionals who might want to improve their 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 skill, their awareness, their competency in working with multiracial clients? Again, you know, just taking into account like you know your own experiences, um, you know, with 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 the populations you see.
2: Yeah, well, you know as you were speaking I had a memory Should I can say what not to do you know I recently had uh, wanted an IFS therapist for myself I couldn't get one from US because licensing laws nobody feels comfortable to work overseas most people don't if they're clinicians uh, it's not within your license right so I came to understand that so I said, okay let me head to the UK went online when I looked in the UK found somebody supposed to be well trained in, in the IFS and, and did the therapy and you know I had, a, I had a feeling. He's a white English guy. I had a feeling from the beginning, but I spoke to him. I said, you know, I'm a black woman from Trinidad, this is my heritage, this is who I am. Are you going to be comfortable? Yeah, 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 he says. And then we start the therapy and, you know, I wasn't comfortable. I was overriding it, but my body, and I do believe a lot, so this is one takeaway, maybe a lot of racial trauma is in your body. It's in the subtle holding in your body. That's the first place it's going to show up. That's how you're going to know yes I am experiencing a microaggression it's a body feeling you know? mm-hmm. so I was getting them but I was ignoring that you know because I'm in white space I've got my mask on I'm doing the do you know I'm turning up, I need this therapy I want I want to learn this model I want to learn it from the inside out until it came to a point one day I was talking and I'm like I was going to go on a training in uh, an IFS training in the US and I was getting anxious because it was going to be a predominantly white training again at my level two and I was like you know, and I just wanted to talk about it, like my feelings about going into this predominantly white training. And and he's like, <laughs> some point in the conversation he says, Oh well, it's a good thing we don't have any racism in England, then isn't it? And I it was it was just too much. My brain exploded. I had an explosion and dissociation came and I couldn't actually finish a session. So I just imploded basically. I just I just couldn't I couldn't finish the session. I just let him talk. I said nothing and we just finished. And then then I sort of debriefed myself, thought about it, I realised what was going on, I caught it, I'm a little familiar with my parts, and so I, I paid, again, to have one more session I had to pay him for to address it, to say, you know, this is ridiculous, you know nothing of your history, you know. England and a few other Europeans are through the cause of all of this structure, you're literally created it, your country is built on it, like what are you talking about? And on top of that, I've lived in England, so it's not only the legacy in my region, I've experienced direct daily racism in England. I went to a school with swastikas on the wall, little signs that say National Front, which is the UK, um, KKK equivalent. That was my school, like, this is my daily existence, what are you talking about? And you, you've, you've got to inform yourself, you cannot take a black client and say that you're a multiracial client, anybody who's not white, you cannot take them and, and, and say that you are happy to work with them and be that ill-informed, because you are going to do harm. You know? yes. you, you've got to know something, you've got to do some research, do something, you know and you don't have to know everything you know I don't know everything about every client I work with you know we're so mixed here in Trinidad that people are coming with really different stories you know so so the other thing is be open so that that therapist could have also just been open to hearing my experience but no he wanted to jump in there and and you know he was feeling triggered right he's starting to feel guilty maybe in there and he he comes with this nonsense that I mean I could never do therapy with him again and luckily I was also in a supervision uh, for people of color in a small supervision group oh, for women okay. of color led by a woman of color and right. in there i spoke of it and they said like get rid of him it really helped me to oh so, yeah my reaction's right because i was like confused you know i was <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah you, a little bit informed we've got to understand system systemic oppression we've got to understand that if you're working with clients any client anywhere it's going to be a piece of it you know? And multi-racial clients have a complicated experience of systematic oppression. Even more complicated, maybe I don't know if even more, but it's, it's got its own complexities. And then I guess open to hearing their experience, you know, because I, I work with people in, in religious life, for example. I know nothing about religious life, but I think. The beauty of my experience of being all of you know different cultures different races you know I've existed in so many even in terms of economic privilege uh in the UK I went to a really poor school in a poor area you know and in in Trinidad I live a very nice solidly middle class life you know I've got all these different experiences your clients will tell you you just got to be able to hear it you know and you've got to check your reactions (laughs) they will tell you what everything you know so my clients in religious life explains me all kinds you know, and I can go with it because I'm open to their very different ways that they experience in the world than than what I've experienced because I wasn't born up religious. Mm -hmm. Mm.
1: Well, thank you so much, Laura, for, you know, for being here and, and just sharing sharing your vulnerability and um, really just speaking from your experiences and from the heart about, uh, you know, um, what you've observed, what what you've been through yourself. Um, Really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, as we close here, wondering if there's anything that you would like uh, to share with our audience about how they can find you, Um, you know, any places that you're showing up, soon you know your trainings you're doing where can people find you
2: well you know I guess my email is the best way to find me I don't have
1: a website
2: as such you know it's, it's since COVID and all the online working that the idea of working for you know in people in the U.S. or other places is, is become more of a thing you know and I'm really happy to work with people from everywhere in the world I, I love that so yeah my name my email is one way at gmail
0: okay can you uh what's just
2: your lara name? yeah lara baden semper which is yeah I'll say it slowly lara baden semper l-a-r-a-b-a-d-e-n-s-e-m-p-e-r at gmail.com is one way to find me and i am a yeah frequent program assistant in ifs trainings especially ones targeted at by people so uh, you know I, you may see me there very much hoping to at some point present as an IFS conference. We'll see if that happens. Mm. Mm. I'm also, you know, super interested in doing group work and and thinking that's going to be a lovely way to work some of these particular issues. You know, in a in an affinity space in a group with other people with similar identities. That's something I'm thinking a lot about. If people are interested in that.
1: Mm. Fantastic. Thank you. so much. Well,
0: thank you again, Laura. I've just what a generous offering you shared with us and our listeners today. I learned so much from you. So thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You've been listening to Multiracial Mental Health, a monthly podcast where mixed therapists center and explore the lived experience of multiracial people, couples and families.
1: Multiracial Mental Health, the podcast, is an ACAST production and a project of the Multiracial Mental Health Clinician Directory at www.multiracialmentalhealth.com.
0: Mental health is a journey, and we're here to support. If you've enjoyed the episode, be sure to like us, share the show, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual places where content can be found.